Hello and welcome to uh, another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, today I'll be talking to Nazli Magsudi, uh, who is manager of the Policy Impact Unit at the Centre on Drug Policy Evaluation in Toronto. Uh, she is also a PhD candidate in health services research at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation within the University of Toronto. Um, Nasli's article uh, is titled Drug Checking Services for People Who Use Drugs, a Systematic Review. Uh, Nasli, welcome to the podcast and, and thank you for joining me. Um, so your, your systematic review about drug checking services is very timely. It's very kind of um, in the news at the moment, in the last few years, certainly. Um, now you look at three domains. You looked at um, the behaviour of people using those services, um, drug market monitoring, and kind of other outcomes. But firstly, what did you find in relation to behaviour? Did drug checking services change people's behaviour? Yeah, it absolutely did. We found that there is an emerging evidence base that shows quite clearly that drug checking services influence intended and actual behaviours of people who use drugs. Certainly there is more evidence on intended behaviors, so what people say they are going to do, but there is also a significant amount of research as well on actual behaviors, so what people actually did. And the thing to note here is that people say they're going to change their behavior more often when the drug checking service detects something different than what they thought they had in their drugs. So the results are unexpected in some way, or if drugs of concern are detected. So maybe something that's thought of as suspicious or having some health harms, that would be another case in which they're more likely to decide to change their behavior in response to the analysis results. Uh, so so the, the second outcome, and we'll come back to some of that. There's, there's, you know, there's plenty to, um... There's plenty to uh, to digest in in the ninety studies that you you included, um, but in, just briefly in terms of drug market outcomes. So one of the other things that obviously drug checking services do is to kind of monitor what drugs are being sold as what, um, and to gain information information about that. What did you what did you find in regard to drug market outcomes? So that was absolutely the domain that was the most prominent in the research. I think it was 70% of our studies were absolutely looking at monitoring of drug markets. And really, the main outcome measure that was prevalent there was about concordance. So versus what folks expected to have compared to what was actually detected. Um, was it what was expected or was it what was unexpected? And this is, of course, one of the unique pieces of information that drug checking offers in contrast to other forms of drug market monitoring like seizures or wastewater analysis. In those cases, you don't actually know what the person thought they were taking or intended to take. So this comparison between how it was sold, what it was given as versus what it actually contained is a really critical piece of information that dr drug checking is able to offer. And in fact, was the predominant outcome measure amongst those monitoring of drug market studies. And the other ones that I'll mention as well, the detection of new psychoactive substances. I believe there were four studies that were actually technical papers where the drug checking service identified a novel substance that hadn't been characterized before. Um, and then also drugs of concern, things like fentanyl, things like atropine, levamisole, PMMA, or PMM, PMA that are detected as well. Um, and those being a key way that drug checking services can allow individuals who use drugs to be aware of potentially problematic substances that they don't want to consume or didn't intend to consume. Yeah, it's it's fascinating the the uh, the evidence that that you can get from these kinds of these kinds of tests. Did you get a sense of um, uh, and it's difficult because you you know the sampling is is often people who are already concerned about what they've bought for one reason or another. But did you get a sense of, of, of how much uh, how how common it was for people to find that the substance wasn't what they thought it was? 
Yeah, well, absolutely. Like unexpected substances being detected. And by that, we mean the expected substance wasn't in it at all. That was detected in 55% of our studies. So it was quite common that the outcome measure included in studies was that case. And it varies depending on the substance that you're looking at. Um, certain ones were, would be found to be more contaminated than others. Um, certain sources of drug markets, like some compared online sources versus kind of traditional quote unquote street based substances that were obtained that way. So depending on kind of where it was obtained, we may have seen some differences there that and, and they compared concordance as well. Um, but absolutely, it was something that was com very common. It was the second most um, common, um, or the most rather common outcome measure within drug market monitoring, where the second was that your expected substance was. So if anything, yeah. unexpected was more common than expected substance among the outcome measures that were found, which, you know, won't be a surprise to anyone who uses drugs and knows that it's often um, not, if not at least somewhat what you think, it's not entirely what you think. So there's always some sort of divergence from what's being told, whether it's just some sort of non-problematic adulterant or something more insidious. So uh, expect the unexpected kind of thing. Uh, so if we can move on to some of the, the, the methods now uh, a little bit, because obviously, obviously this was a systematic review. So there's obviously, you know, there's, there's a process that you go through that. You mentioned that you uh, had your um, your search term peer reviewed. Um, can you tell me just uh, by an academic librarian, uh, I believe this was. So can you tell us a bit about the process of that and, and what kind of changes you made to your search as, as in response to that? Yeah, absolutely. So we worked with a library sciences expert that was part of our review team. Her name's Carolyn Ziegler. She's amazing. She helped us develop, pilot, refine the search strategy for sure. But then she had somebody outside of our team, someone that she works with, then take that strategy and peer review it. So they followed something called the peer review of electronic search strategies or press to make sure that it was in alignment, that everything looked good um, and revised it accordingly. So I think there were some small tweaks, nothing too, too major but always useful to get that second set of eyes. Um, and for I'm not somebody that's, you know, very well versed in search strategies or different databases have different types of requirements. We searched eight different databases. So it was really great to get both of their perspectives to make sure that the search strategy for each database was going to yield us the best results in that respective database. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 librarians are, are just the best. Um, uh, so you're... Um... Uh, and also about your cutoff points, you, you mentioned about you mentioned about about three about there being three waves of drug checking services. That's kind of the sixties, seventies, the nineties, and, um, uh, and and more recently. Um, but you, your your cutoff for, for articles was nineteen ninety. Um, was there was there a reason to cut that off? And, and was there a, a, the potential that you then don't pick up some of the the research from the seventies, the late sixties and seventies? Mm -hmm. So upon beginning this work, and I actually did do a scoping review before this systematic review, just to get a sense of the literature, and my longstanding understanding, and I think many people in harm reduction and drug checking, there's this common, I guess, misconception that drug checking emerged in the 1990s in Europe. DIMS in the Netherlands is often pointed to as 1992 being the first drug checking service. So when we established our eligibility criteria, we used 1990 just in case there was any pre-work before 1992, but thinking with that in mind. And through, um, we part of our methods was also to search the reference list of included studies. And through doing that, 
we were able to identify a couple articles from the, the 70s and 80s. And we found that actually drug checking services did exist in the late 1960s and early 1970s, kind of during the rise of the psychedelic counterculture, like Summer of Love um, in the US. And then they were expanded in Europe. So I'm really careful to say where the origin is, I'm not sure. In fact, in one of the articles from 1974 that was talking about the various kind of US-based drug checking services in different states, the author mentions visiting street drug analysis services in Western Europe in 74. Wow. So I, I wish I could take a time machine and go back and like find out what was happening then. But absolutely, I think those, our sense from myself and our senior authors was that we're covering, you know, 30 years of data. So if anything, the most relevant data also exists post 1990. It was of interest for me to see those couple studies. And certainly we built it into the systematic review in the background section so that folks can know about that first wave and the early origins. Um, but really, through just some searching that I did to, to after recognizing that there was that paper from 1974, I think there's just a couple of articles. It didn't seem that there was a bunch of literature from them anyway. So I do not think that we have missed a lot, um, but I think it's still uh, relevant to point to in terms of a historical correction for, for many that thought they knew the origins of drug checking. It's a little more muddy than that and earlier. And, and so you've got this 30 years. It's, it's slightly, slightly terrifying that 1990 was 30 years ago. Um, but you have this 30 years of, of data on drug checking services. Did you get a sense that the, that they had changed over that time, that, that some of the ones from, from the 90s were using perhaps different technology or, or different methods to, to more recent ones? Hmm. Well, certainly what we saw over time is that the amount of research increased really kind of exponentially in the last few years. So the range of time, that the range of studies, the years of them was between 1997 and 2019. So there, we actually didn't identify any that met our inclusion criteria before 1997. But really the early of that, kind of before 2014, there was just, just shy of 29% of our studies fall before 2014. And then between 2014 and 2016, it's just about 24%. Uh, and then since then, so the Mass, vast majority of them, about 47%, are between the last couple of years, 2017 to 2019. And actually, we noted in our discussion section that since we ran the search in October 2019, and this was, of course, just published quite recently, there have also been many studies that have come out since then. So it really seems like the emphasis or the ability, the interest to do kind of academic work on drug checking services, also as a result of their expansion to different countries. We know um, the third kind of wave of drug checking services hitting places like Canada, the United States, UK, Australasia, th them releasing research for some of the first times on this topic, of course. So I think that would be the main thing that I noticed over time was, wow, the ways in which we've seen a huge kind of burst of research in most recent years and since the systematic review was conducted. So I think, you know, in many ways, this systematic review will warrant updating in, in the near future. I'll just add that, for example, one study was the first one that actually spoke with people who sell drugs that use drug checking services. Um, there's a little bit of that in the studies that were included, but it was more so people who use drugs, drugs speculating about what people who sell drugs would think or what their barriers would be to access. But to actually have that population, like that's a whole new subpopulation that hadn't been researched at all before. So I think really important pieces are continuing to come out and I expect that that won't stop. Um, so yeah, glad to see that this has gotten, you know, great research attention and it'll fill some of the gaps of, in research that we identified in the systematic review as well. 
Yeah, and, and, and so with with those, with those gaps, um, so you, you included 90 studies, um, and within those 90 studies, there were 55 different outcome measures. And you talk about there being too much uh, heterogeneity to, uh, to conduct a meta-analysis. Um, were you surprised at, at how varied the studies were? Um, and, you know, I suppose, is that something that frustrates you about the ability to kind of draw, like, um, solid conclusions from, from what, what should be quite a substantial evidence base by now? Mm-hmm. I mean, first, I'll say that I was very surprised that there were 90 studies that met inclusion criteria. Having done the scoping review before, I was kind of speculating maybe 30, 35, nowhere near this amount. And and the reason why it was so many studies, I think, has to do with the fact that we had no language restrictions, that we included peer-reviewed conference abstract. There's a good chunk of the studies that are actually peer-reviewed conference abstracts, so not very lengthy, but still nonetheless added to the number of included studies. And we also included gray literature on the primary domain of interest, so the behavior change among people who use drugs that access drug checking services. So yeah, I mean, I I think also because of that heterogeneity in just including gray literature and including conference abstracts, that also serves as a, a limitation in bringing all of this together in some sort of clean, neatly packaged way that you would hope to do with something like a meta-analysis that has clear kind of outcome measures that apply across all of the studies and, and also like subpopulations that that overlap or uh, just contexts that are comparable enough. Uh, we know that the, the differences between quote unquote party goers or people in party settings, if you will, that access drug checking it's not going to be really comparable to quote unquote structurally vulnerable people who use drugs, people who inject drugs or use supervised consumption sites and are at risk of overdose and have had drug checking services expanded to reach them for those reasons. So absolutely, I mean, I think as the research base expands, um, there might be more suitable ways of bringing the data together, again, amongst those subpopulations where it makes sense to lump it. Um, But at this case, it it was not yet there. So hopefully the beginnings and, and then another update could maybe include a meta-analysis in the future. I, th- I thought one of the, one of the uh, fascinating ones is the one that um, matched up uh, people who inject drugs um, and matching up their use of drug checking services and their intention uh, to use less because they found fentanyl with um, and, and matching that up with um, overdose rates in the groups that that had that intention and those that didn't is that kind of kind of run almost you know, that controlled trial is that something that, that would help the the area move forward well what you're referring to as well is the only study in the entirety of the systematic review that linked to linked it to health outcomes so it actually linked their drug checking results what they did in, in response to them to health outcomes and that was at a supervised consumption service where it was a little bit easier for them to see if you know an overdose did occur after the individual had their drugs checked on site and they went to use the supervised consumption service and then if naloxone was administered as well i think that's the the one you're talking about so yeah that is one of the gaps in the literature for sure is linking what people intend to do what they say they did with the health outcomes that then followed so i would love to see more research like that um i think it's it's sometimes difficult to do you know you a supervised consumption site presents a context where that's maybe more possible um, than something like a music festival where there isn't that follow-up folks folks just kind of walk away after getting their results and their harm reduction tips but absolutely environments like that do allow for a little bit more of a monitoring and, and seeing well what did this actually lead to when the person did continue to use the substance so hope to see more of that in the future for sure um, so, uh, so it, it, what would your advice be to, uh, you know, based on on the findings of your systematic review, if you have 
policymakers out there who are, who are considering um, implementing drug checking services at perhaps a festival or a club or, or um, any location. <laughs> if you've got somebody who's considering a drug checking services, what were the key kind of uh, findings of your review that, that would help policymakers? Absolutely. I would strongly recommend that they implement drug checking services in their locality. Of course, it needs to be tailored to the specific context, to the people who use drugs there. There are so many different models for drug checking, whether it's mobile services, fixed services, or the distribution of kind of analysis methods that folks can take home and use on their own. So figuring out what works in your context is super important. But for the the perspective of allowing individuals to make more informed choices, we know from the systematic review that they do make changes in their behavior. They do take that information into account. And whether it's choosing to not use, choosing to use less, choosing to seek more information before they use, that gives them information to make more informed choices about their substance use. And in and of itself, I think that is a sufficient reason. But if not convinced by that, I think the monitoring of drug markets is just such a critical piece. And of course, the most well-researched effect or impact, if you will, of drug checking services that you can kind of monitor what's going on and in a unique way, as we talked about, and in kind of a real-time way that this is actually what is circulating now on the ground amongst people who use drugs. And there are ways in which that, of course, reaches individuals beyond just those that are dropping off samples to be tested or checked at the drug checking service. They can reach much broader of a population when you combine those results in and of people who use drugs, of people who serve them, harm reduction workers, clinicians, anyone who interacts with people who use drugs should really know what types of substances are actually being consumed that may may differ significantly from what is being consumed. And if I can give one example from Toronto, we've seen in Toronto's drug checking service, a huge rise in benzodiazepines, things like etizolam, Um, that are being found in opioids. And folks, you know, are not intending to take benzodiazepines. But now, because it's so prominent in our opioid supply, and sustained use of benzodiazepines does have effects, you can have withdrawal symptoms and various outcomes that are affected by that. So it's really important for a clinician who's engaging with someone who uses opioids regularly to know that this person has long standing benzodiazepines in their system, um, that they might be unbeknownst to them, but is certainly going to have ramifications for their healthcare and their health services that are needed. Um, so I think it goes a long way to actually know uh, what folks are, are taking and not only for them, but also for the people who serve them. So hopefully that would convince the, the politician. <laughs> I'd, I'd not thought of it in that way. You know, the, 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 the interactions with medicine and how important it is to have that data for, uh, for, for GPs, for doctors, um, people working. That's really interesting. Um, so, so your your PhD is, um, is is focusing on drug checking services, and this this systematic review was was the the first step. Another thing I would like to mention is the support was provided for this systematic review by the Canadian Research Initiative in Substance Misuse (CRISM), as well as the Canadian Institutes of Health Research through my Vanier Canada Graduate Scholarship. So grateful to our funders. So, uh, so what what are the next steps for for your PhD and for the research in this area? Yeah. And yes, the systematic review, it was, I, I like to say that it took years of and off my life because it was such a bigger <laughs> undertaking that I thought. And I don't, I mean, I think it's really important. I, I guess the fact that we found 90 studies just proves how much a systematic review was needed because even those doing scoping reviews didn't see that that, that much evidence was out there. So I guess good to say that we did it, but I don't know 
often I think when folks do systematic reviews, they think, oh, I'll never do one again because it's just such a massive undertaking. But so glad to have the first one out of the way and hopeful that the next couple won't take as long as this first one did. Um, but those are a mixed method study looking at Toronto's drug checking service. So I'm kind of into the second one right now. It's an exploratory sequential design. So the first is a qualitative phase. I've, I've finished my data collection. I've gone out and I've spoken to 24 people who use drugs that have used Toronto's drug checking service and kind of gotten an understanding of the ways in which they use the service, like what were their pathways and context for use? How did the analysis results impact them? Like what did they do in response to them? Did they share that information? Did they choose a difference in their use? Did they choose to buy from somebody else next time? All the different ways that that might have had an impact. And then also a bit around the barriers and facilitators, like what worked well about the service and what could be better. So I'm kind of in the phase now of analyzing that data. And because it's exploratory, that analysis of the qualitative phase will inform my quantitative phase. So we do have some survey data that we've been collecting since Toronto's drug checking service was up and running, just some intake questions that folks can answer when they drop off a sample, a little bit about demographics and kind of their drug using patterns, a little bit about the sample itself. So hoping to dig into that based upon the findings from the qualitative work and see kind of where there is um, match where there is differences, um, seeing what more we can learn from both of those sources of data, hoping to have a really kind of full fleshed out perspective on how Toronto's drug checking service is operating and what could be better about it. And yeah, in, in the in the hope of really improving and iterating the service, because while I am, um, I have my evaluator hat on for the, the research piece, I'm also was kind of a, a central figure in bringing drug checking to Toronto. I wrote the grant to Health Canada that got us the funding to implement Toronto's drug checking service and the our CDP, Centre on Drug Policy Evaluation, we're kind of the central project coordinator um, between our frontline harm reduction agencies where samples are collected and results are given, and our clinical labs where those samples are analyzed. So hoping as well that my research won't just be research, but will actually inform the improvement of our service and hopefully the sustainability of our services. We are funded as a pilot project and we're coming up close to the end of our five years and it's become really an important service in our community. So I hope that we can sustain it and that this research helps to support that. Um, I hope so too. Um, I look forward to reading the research when it's uh, when it's published. Uh, it sounds, sounds amazing. Um, and, you know, and I think in, in an area where with things like large-scale randomised controlled trials are are often just either completely uh, unfeasible or inappropriate. Kind of good quality mixed methods research uh, can really help kind of uh, shine a light on, on what works, who it works for, um, uh, how it works and, and, and how to kind of optimise these kinds of interventions. Whilst you were looking at, uh, whilst you were looking at the literature, were there any kind of uh, substantial uh, gaps in the literature that, that you think uh, would be useful to address? Absolutely. I think further research on actual behaviors, so those enacted behaviors is needed in the literature, as well as linking behaviors to health outcomes. We talked about how there was just a single study out of all 90 of them that did make that linkage. So more of that would be wonderful in the context where it's possible and it can work. Um, and as well amongst populations other than quote unquote party goers, there is a, a bit of emerging research and surely since this review was published, there has been more, but among people who inject drugs or use opioids, the quote unquote structurally vulnerable folks, I think that would also be an asset to the literature. But in addition to that, I would add more rigorous and higher quality study designs. And this is really a consequence of 
most of the research being cross-sectional, which of course is, is excellent and, and it can be used in these contexts really easily, but it has its own limitations. And then the intended outcome measures, while again, what is feasible in the context of these situations where someone gets the results and they walk away and you don't have follow-up with them, that's subject to that intention behavior gap, right? So folks don't always necessarily do what they say they're going to do. So I think uh, if we can focus on actual behaviors, even though you know self-reported historical recall also has limitations, um, but maybe it's a little bit more rigorous than intended behaviors, um, not to undermine any of the excellent research that's been done. I think this has all gotten us to a really wonderful place. And I'm glad that the systematic review could bring it together and show that there is strong research. Um, but I think there are ways in which that we can continue to enhance the evidence base as we move through the years. Yeah, it's a slightly, it's an uncomfortably long chain of causality, isn't it? What they say they'll do, what they intend to do, what they actually do, and, uh, and, and like how much confidence you can have in it after those kind of four steps have elapsed in a, in a festival full of marginal chaos and loud music. Um, Nasli uh, Magsudi, uh, thank you so much for your time today.